Christ our God descendeth, our full homage to the man. On this blessed Christmas day, we have a unique privilege on a day like this to actually be together and to wish one another Merry Christmas on Christmas morning. I know for some of you, uh, the decision was, what will I do on Christmas Day this year? Will I go to church or not? Um, just to let you know, I, I'm not sure if this is true, but I've read it. The next time we will be in church on Christmas morning will be in 11 years from now. So it doesn't come that often. And when it does, it's unique, it's special. It certainly makes our family plans a little different causing us to open the gifts a little earlier, uh, putting on hold the ability to enjoy those gifts right away, uh, moving around plans to be with family and friends. Friends, this is the reason why the Lord has descended. The Lord our God descended on earth to be with us, not only to be with us, but also so that we might be with one another. When we think about the message of Christmas, particularly this year, we have taken the, the path of working through the message of Christmas by looking at the book of Romans, and particularly looking at those passages in the book of Romans uh, where the Apostle Paul speaks about the birth of Jesus. Last Sunday, we considered uh, the theme of Jesus being the descendant of David. Uh, last night, uh, I share with you a few words of encouragement from uh, Romans chapter 8 about why Jesus uh, was born, why God sent Jesus. He sent Jesus for our sin. Now, this morning, we continue to look at a third passage of the book of Romans uh, about the birth of Jesus, and that is found in Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 13. Romans chapter 15. I'll be reading from verse 8 to verse 13. And as you find your way there, often when we consider the message of Christmas, and when we consider the effects of the coming of Christ, we think only of the individualistic effects, of the way Christ benefits me and you personally. And there's certainly a personal dimension to what Christ brings us. But this morning we will see more than just a personal dimension, we will see a corporate dimension. We will see how the coming of Christ affects our one another. So let's hear God's word this morning as we hear his word from Romans 15 verse 8 all the way to verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope 
fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning on this Christmas day. Would you join me in prayer asking God to bless the preaching and the hearing of this word for his glory. Let's pray. Gracious Father, you have given us your son. You have sent him to us so that in him we may have hope, so that through him we may experience your mercies. Father, as we have read this word, as we stand here in front of this moment in your presence, hearing your word expounded, I pray that you would help me to proclaim it and I ask that you would help us all to hear it for the glory of Christ and for his effect in all our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This passage from the book of Romans is the last section before the Apostle Paul begins his closure to the book. In other words, starting with chapter 15, verse 14, the passage where we stopped, that's the beginning of the end of Romans. That's the conclusion. That, that's where Paul begins the conclusion. That means that this passage we've just read is the last part before the descent of the book. And it's amazing that not only at the very beginning of the book, but in this moment of culmination, the Apostle Paul would speak about the coming of Jesus, about his birth, about his incarnation. Why is the Apostle Paul speaking about the incarnation of Jesus in this climactic part of the book of Romans? I must confess, as I was looking at this passage, I thought, oh, there's going to be some sweet things about the birth of Jesus from the book of Romans I've never considered. And sure enough, there were. But in the process of working through this passage, as, as, and we will see two images of Jesus in this passage describing his coming and his, his descent with us, his being with us. But the purpose why Paul would bring these pictures of the coming of Christ to be with us, the purpose surprised me, caught me uh, by surprise. And that is, this passage is serving as evidence for a command the Apostle Paul gave in verse 7. This passage is the supporting evidence Paul gives for the command of verse 7. And as I often encourage you to do, as, of, as I often try to do it myself, we need to interpret every passage in the context. What's going on before and what's going on after. And when I considered the context of what went on before, I was puzzled. And I want you to join me in that puzzling this morning. And consider why these images of, of Jesus, why Paul gives them to us. Here's the command in verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. 
This is the command. And the passage we have read is the grounds or the evidence or the reason why we must welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. Oftentimes when we think at Christmas, it's a time when we think of welcoming Christ to us. We think perhaps of the story of, of, the, of the innkeeper who, for whom or with whom there's no room with him in the inn for Jesus. And there's this message, will you welcome him? And here Paul says, actually, it's not about you welcoming Jesus. It's about the fact that he has welcomed you. He came to us, not to be welcomed by us. He came to us to welcome us with God. So two images we're going to see in this passage about Jesus. But the aim of it, the function of these two images, is to help us welcome one another for the glory of Christ as Christ has welcomed us. What are the two images that Paul gives us? The first one is Christ came as a servant. We see this in, in verse 8. Paul says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Uh, the fact that Paul even begins this verse with, For I tell you, gives you a hint that his main idea started earlier. The, the four is a clue that this is a reason for what he said earlier. And the first reason is, for Christ became a servant. Oh, friends, in taking on human flesh, the eternal Son of God became a servant. The one through whom the world came into existence, the one who is the radiance of God, he would become a servant. Who did he serve? He came to serve the circumcised. Now that's, a, that's a strange way of talking about the Jewish people, don't you think? Why would Paul speak about the Jewish people by giving this symbol, the circumcised? Well, because in the book of Romans, one of the problems that was going on in the church of Rome that Paul is addressing in this book is the tension between Jews and Gentiles in the church. So even by bringing up this description, Christ came as a servant to the circumcised, he is using the kind of language they might have used against each other, perhaps in a derogatory way. We don't know exactly if that's what's going on, but perhaps. And yet Paul says, welcome one another. As Christ has welcomed you, why? Because Christ came, became a servant to the circumcised. To the people that you Gentiles may think are too weak, weak in faith. That they're not able to see all that God has done. That they're still stuck on their Jewish laws. Christ came to be a servant to these circumcised. But when we think about Christ becoming a servant to the circumcised, Paul is actually trying to uphold 
not so much the humility of Jesus, but the role of Jesus as a servant who executes God's plan. The aim, the picture of, of a servant here is not so much a picture of humility, but rather it's a picture of the one who does, who executes, who carries out the purpose of his master. Again, the aim here is not so much humility, but execution, carrying out. See to it that it is done. Imagine if your car is broke and you try to fix it yourself and it doesn't work. And perhaps you have a friend who knows a little bit about cars and he gives it a shot and uh, it still doesn't work. And you take it to a mechanic that you know. He's not really a specialist on your car, but he's a mechanic and he's a friend and he'll give you a deal and he's trying to work on your car and, uh, and he can't fix it. So after all the attempts, you've, you just decide, you know what, I'm just going to take it to the dealer. They, they, have, they have people there who know how to fix it because that's all they do, fix those kind of cars. Because they're specialists in that particular model. Those technicians are servants to work on that car because they're specialized to work on a car like yours. That doesn't mean they are servants, you know, the picture of a servant in that way would not be a humble picture. The point is they get the job done. They know what it's required and they carry it through. That's the picture of a servant here. To carry out the purposes of the master who is the master? Jesus came to be a servant to the circumcised. It's not the circumcised who call the shots of what the servant is supposed to do. They're simply the beneficiaries of the service the servant came to render. And what is, what is the service given to the circumcised? Well, let's look. Paul says in verse 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. Do you hear what this servant came to, to execute, to carry out, to prove the truthfulness of God? God's character was on the line. Will he do what he said? Will he do what he has promised to the patriarchs of old? Is it an amazing that this is how Paul started talking about Jesus in chapter 1? That God that this gospel that God has revealed to us is a gospel concerning His Son, a gospel that He foretold of old through the prophets of the Old Testament Scriptures. And Paul now at the end of this book comes again to this picture of speaking about Christ coming to show, to demonstrate the truthfulness of God. God will do what He has promised. And to know exactly more what, those, what that truthfulness is, Paul continues in verse 8 and he says, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Oh friends, Christ came to display, to show that God is true. This is why Christ came as a servant. This is why he was born. To carry out what God had planned to accomplish. One of the promises that God promised the patriarchs, particularly Abraham, was that in his seed, 
all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And this is not news to the book of Romans. Paul actually mentioned this particular promise in chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. Paul says, as it is written, I have made you, speaking about Abraham, the father of many nations. And then in verse 18, in hope, he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he has been told, so shall your offspring be. What is the promise that God made to the patriarchs? That the father of the Israelites, humanly speaking, Abraham, would be a father not only to the ethnic Israelites, but to all the nations. This has been the promise. Will God carry it through? Jesus came to be a servant to show the truthfulness of God. Jesus would be the one through whom this promise given to Abraham would actually be fulfilled. And just in case we don't miss the connection, the fleshing out of the truthfulness of God is continued in verse 9 with a second clarifying purpose. If the first clarifying purpose of, of serving to show the truthfulness of God was to confirm the promise given to the patriarchs, the second part of that is in verse 9, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercies. Oh, this is why Christ came to become a servant. This is a service Christ came to render, to show the truthfulness of God that he has promised to his people, to the patriarchs in the Old Testament, but that would, become, that would come to be fulfilled in actually bringing mercy to the Gentiles. Oh, friends, Paul speaks about Jesus being a servant who not only displays the truthfulness of God, but who actually is the mediator of the mercy of God for all the nations of the earth. This is why Jesus was born. And Paul is so focused on this point of Jesus being a servant who carries out, brings out the mercies of God for all the nations of the earth that he brings four quotations from the Old Testament to prove the point that this has been God's plan all along. Four quotes from the Old Testament. And you wonder, Paul, couldn't you make it a little shorter and just give us one? That would have been enough. But no, two, three, no, four of them. So let's look at what Paul is seeking to prove through these four quotations. The first quotation comes from Psalm 117. It's in verse 9. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. As our brother Ryan started the service this morning with a call to worship from Psalm 117. And if you, if you looked at Psalm 117, it's the shortest psalm ever. Only two verses. Earlier this week, Pastor Russ and I, during our elders meeting, we were meditating on this passage. And he helped me see actually... Uh, that indeed, Psalm 117 is the shortest passage. And you're, you're quickly, when you read such short psalms, you, you can quickly just glance through it, go quickly through it, don't pay attention much to it. And yet, 
it is one of the prophecies that Paul now says is fulfilled in Jesus. Even a short psalm, even a, what may look like an insignificant uh, piece of a, of a Hebrew poem that was meant to encourage us to worship God, even such a short piece is actually a prophetic word to speak about the coming of Jesus. Look at, at, the, second ver, at the second quotation in verse 10. It's an invitation to the Gentiles to rejoice. Look again. It says, and again it says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Christ becoming a servant of the mercies of God to the nations opens the door for this invitation to be extended. An invitation to come and rejoice. An invitation given to those who were left out. In the Old Testament, the Gentiles were not invited. They were left out, left out of the worship of God in general. And yet, even in the Old Testament, there were clues that God would bring a time when he will invite the nations to come in. And Paul says, here's a time. This is now being fulfilled. Friends, when we hear about the reason why Jesus came as a servant, it's so that this invitation to joy could be extended to you and to me. All of us are, well, most of us are Gentiles here. This invitation, however, to joy, to come and rejoice, notice it's not an invitation that is isolated. It says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. It's a corporate invitation. It's an invitation to rejoicing with God's people. Yes, the rejoicing is personal, but it's not in isolation from God's people. The third quote in verse 11 calls the Gentiles to praise the Lord and to extol him. The Gentiles not only get to hear the name of God proclaim and sung among them, but they are invited into this worship and praise of God. At the beginning of this book, God's wrath was revealed because people chose to exchange the glory of God for created things. And now at the end of the letter, we see a promise and an invitation to the nations to come and praise the Lord, to extol Him, to glorify Him. Well, friends, the praising of God's people was not planned to be limited only to the Jewish people. The praising of God and the praising that God's people were called to have for their Lord was not planned to be only for the Jewish people. It was planned for you and I to be invited into that praise. And this is the mercy of God. It is extended not merely to one nation, but to all the peoples of the earth to, to be invited to return to the God that they have turned away from the God that they have chose to exchange His glory for creative things, to come back to Him, to hear of His name sung, to rejoice in Him with God's people, and to praise Him. Oh, friends, what does it mean for us to understand the coming of Jesus as a servant to the Jewish people for the sake of the nations? 
Friends, God's mercy is found only in Jesus. Jesus is a servant of God's mercy for anyone who would put their trust in him. Do you see Jesus as a servant of God's mercies for you? Sometimes we want God to be merciful to us in various ways, various life scenarios, difficulties, challenges, health conditions, conflict, things that don't turn, turn out the way we do. And we might sometimes pray and say, Lord, have mercy. Work. Work powerfully in the situation. Work powerfully in this difficulty. But here the Apostle Paul tells us that the mercy of God is found supremely in and through his son, Jesus Christ. Do you see Jesus as a servant of God's mercies for you? He's the one who carries out the mercies of God, brings them to you without fail. But do you also see that the mercy of God given to us is not for our sake alone. It's for the sake of the nations of the earth. That's why we do international missions. Whether we send people from our own congregation to go, like Amy went this summer for the summer uh, practicum to an undisclosed country, whether we are able to support missionaries and encourage them and support them financially and support them in prayers and support them and encourage them by reaching out to them and calling them or checking on them to see how they're doing. All of these ways are ways in which we Take to heart this command that the mercy of God that has reached us is not for our sake alone, but it's for the sake of the nations. That's why we want to stay in touch with Ruth. That's why we want to support missionaries like the IMB missionaries. That's why we support Pastor Titus Akimi in Romania, because we want this gospel to, to reach all the nations of the earth. Friends, the mercy of God is shown to us in Jesus Christ who came as a servant to his people Israel. But it was not for their purpose alone. It was for the purpose of the, of the nations. And the same message is for us. We who have received and heard God's mercies, it's not for us alone. It's so that the, his mercies could continue to go to the ends of the earth. But there is a second picture about Jesus in this passage. It's not only the picture of Jesus who became a servant. We see a second picture, Christ who came to rule. Christ, the ruler, the king, the sovereign. We see this picture in the last of the four quotations that Paul brings up. Uh, the last quotation that he brings up in this expose in his argument here, is from Isaiah 11. The same passage our brother Bogdan read, read earlier for us. Isaiah 11 deliberately explains how the coming of Christ will open the door for unity. For unity. Christ comes as a servant but he also comes as a ruler. Look at verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises 
to rule the Gentiles. Yes, Jesus came as a servant, but he also came as a sovereign. He came to serve, but he came to reign. And to reign not merely over God's people, Israel, but to reign over a different category of people whom God would bring in and also bring them to be a part of his people. And Isaiah's prophecy explicitly says, He who arises to rule the Gentiles. Oh, the, the prophecy about the Messianic king was expected to come. The expectation that he would reign over God's people, particularly the Jews thought over themselves, that was no news. That was expected. But to hear that he would come to reign over the Gentiles, now that's a different category. And Paul is saying here, look, Isaiah spoke of the time that when this ruler would come, his dominion would not be limited only to ethnic Israel. His dominion would be expanded, would reach out, and the Gentiles would come under his dominion. Oh, friends, this is the amazing news that Jesus would come as a, re as a sovereign reign ruler to reign over more than just one nation, but over the nations of the earth. Because Jesus was God's servant who would build up the people of God to be made no longer just of one ethnic group, but among many ethnic groups. Well, friends, Jesus became a servant. But don't mistake his servant role for someone you and I can push around. He came as God's servant in order to bring God's rule over all the nations of the earth. He became a servant in order to rule over the nations as a father determined for him. That's why he's not just a servant, but also a king. He came not merely to serve, but to reign. But notice what, the, what Isaiah the prophet, how he describes the reign of this king as he will reign over the nations. His rule will be a rule of hope. I wonder if you saw that. Again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. And the next phrase, In him will the Gentiles hope. This is not a conquering that the, the Gentiles will be subdued by force, by sword, by sheer strength of war. No, this reign will be very different. This reign will be a reign that will conquer hearts in such a way that the people over whom this king will rule will give their hearts in hope for this king. His reign is a reign of hope. His rule is a rule of hope. Friends, what king 
conquers nations. And yet for those conquered to respond with, with hope. No human king can bring that about. No merely human king can bring that about. But King Jesus, the Son of God who became man, oh friends, when he comes to reign, the nations will hope in him, will seek after him. Oh friends, to describe the nations as putting their hope in this king, in this king from the stump of Jesse, is to describe faith. Faith in Christ means placing your hope in Him. That's why faith in Jesus doesn't mean simply, I believe He exists. I believe He's there. I believe He's doing something up there that's good. No, all that, even the demons can believe in that. But faith, saving faith, is the faith that puts our hope in Him. To put our hope in his rule, to put our hope in his reign, to put our hope in his life, to put our hope in his death, to put our hope in his resurrection, to put our hope in his second coming. Oh, friends, what do you put your hope in? I know we're coming at the end of the year, looking to a new year, hoping it'll be better. What do you put your hope in? Paul tells us that when the reign of this king will come to reign over the Gentiles, the proper response to this king is hope. Because he rule, his rule is a rule of hope. And Paul reflects on the response of the, of the nations. And as he, as he looks at them, at what the nations, how the nations will respond, he brings down all this message to the church of Rome in, in verse 13. And he gives them a benediction. He speaks to them about the source of this hope. Up until now, Paul told them about the object of this hope, that their hope is in this king that will come. But in verse 13, Paul says, let me tell you also about the source of this hope. And this beautiful benediction, this beautiful closing prayer at this moment in the book. Paul says, may the God of hope fill you all with all joy and peace in believing. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. See, Christ is not merely the object of our hope in this passage. God is the source of our hope. And the Holy Spirit is the enabler of our hope. It's as if the entire Trinity is personally involved in my life and your life to make sure that you partake of this hope. That you have this hope. Set on him, from him, and through him. A hope set on Christ. A hope that comes from the God of hope. A hope that is ours in abundant ways through the Holy Spirit who strengthens us, gives us his power. Oh, dear friends, I love how 
Tom Schreiner put it beautifully and succinctly. He's a New Testament professor at Southern Seminary. He said, hope ultimately cannot be produced by human beings. Thus, in verse 13, Paul prays that the God of hope, that is, the God who gives hope, will fill both Jews and Gentiles with all joy and peace in believing. Oh, friends, you see, the need for peace, the need for unity, the need for getting along at the end of the day is not found in us, but in the God who sent his son to become a servant, to bring to us the mercies of God, to Jews and Gentiles alike, to those who received the promises the first time and those who were left out for a while, to bring those two groups together now in Christ so that both groups can set their hope on this messianic king. And both groups may, may be invited, may be guests into this party of joy, into this celebration of rejoicing together into worshiping God together so that their hope together would be set on Him. And it's not only, the result is not only joy, but peace. That's why the coming of Christ in this passage is the ground for our unity for the glory of God. In this passage, Paul actually wants to convince the church in Rome Here's why you believers, Gentiles and Jews alike, though you have reasons to throw grenades at one another or to speak suspiciously against each other or to undermine the respect and the love you ought to have for one another, though you are tempted to do so and do so even on what you may consider biblical grounds, as chapter 14 showed us, even though you have reasons to be in tension with one another, so you think, here's why you must welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Why? Because Christ became a servant to the circumcised for the sake of the nations. Because Christ came to rule. He came from the stump of Jesse. He came from the Jews indeed. Humanly speaking, of, dis, of, of physical descent, but he came to rule over Gentiles. In both pictures, Jews and Gentiles are pictured together so they all may have one hope in one Christ, the hope of God and the hope that abounds in us through his Holy Spirit. Friends, at this Christmas, as we consider all the reasons why Christ came, yes, he came for our sins. He came to reconcile us with God, but he came that, so that this reconciliation with God the Father would not be merely a personal experience, but also a corporate experience, so that our vertical reconciliation with God would also be manifested in our horizontal reconciliation and welcoming of one another into Christ. Friends, let's worship this Christ who became a servant and a ruler for the sake of the glory of God. Let's pray.
Gracious Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he came to make us one. One with you and one with one another. So that together we may display that your kingdom is reaching and extending to the nations of the earth. Father, we pray that our joy and our unity with one another may be a powerful display of the power of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, we pray that his spirit would give us hope. We pray that we would be refreshed in considering the mercies you have given to us in Christ so that we would be a one people joining together in the praise of your glorious name. It is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.